They say desperate times call for desperate measures. And in this video, we are going to see why Satan and his angels are so very desperate so that we can understand why they do what they do. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about Satan's goal. We've already talked about uh, what his powers and limitations are. We've talked about how he is a spatial creature with the same powers and limitations of any other angelic being. Um, I think a lot of you, based on feedback have really seen that the picture we have of Satan, even though he is no less dangerous, is often misguided, and therefore we can be easily blinded to what he's really up to. Uh, we also discussed that he is an ancient enemy who has had thousands of years to learn how we work. Satan cannot be everywhere at once. He cannot whisper lies to us. He cannot do all the things we accuse him of. Yet, he has been around long enough to know what it is that we, as sin-loving creatures, really need in order to pursue sin. And in the last episode, we also talked about how he works with rebellious, angelic rulers to create a world that caters to every single wicked desire that we could ever have. Uh, if you recall, what I had uh, pointed out is that ultimately Satan's greatest weapon is worldliness. The pull that we have towards sin, the options that we are given, the permission that we are given to indulge in our sinfulness in any measure, even sinfulness that seems very good and Christian-like, Satan has created an entire world along with the rebellious angels who are in charge of the nations, right? They have created an entire world basically designed to distract Christians and non-Christians, the question then has to be, why? Why do all this stuff? What is the purpose? You know, these are intelligent beings. They could do a near infinite amount of things with their time. What is it that motivates them to make worldliness such a major part of their daily activities? What is it about worldliness that of all the things that Satan and his angels could do, they choose to craft a world that distracts us, that brings us enjoyment, that brings us pleasure, that lets us find our identity in things? Why is this their go-to move? And that's what we're going to talk about. We are going to see what it is that they are doing to understand not just that worldliness is bad, but why, what the goal is. And I think a lot of us are really going to see how we have been letting Satan's weapon prevail against us for far too long. So let's get into the ultimate goal of Satan and his angels. And ultimately, while again, they are, they're intelligent creatures, they are complex beings. They're going to have a lot of, you know, smaller motivations and things that drive them. Ultimately though, I think they've only got one real motivation, one, one overarching motivation that drives everything else that they do. And that is to stall, stall, and then stall some more. What do I mean by that? What are they stalling from? Here's the reality. Satan and his angels, they know that they have an expiration date. They know that they are not going to live forever. They know they are under God's judgment. We see, we saw it all the way back in 
uh, Psalm 82, right? That God had condemned them and he promised these angelic rulers that they would die like men, that there was a judgment coming for their disobedience and their rebellion. They know it's coming. Uh, we see this also in Matthew 25, 41 says, then he will also say to those on his left, again, this is a future judgment, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Imagine that. They know where they're, they, they've seen their prison. They know what's coming. They know that there is a place designed, especially for them, to hold Satan and his rebellious angels. And that that is the lake of fire. That is where all those who die without Jesus Christ are going to spend eternity. That is where God sends those who rebel, who are guilty of sinning against his will. Uh, now, as far as why I call it the lake of fire and not hell, um, I would just say I'll, in the down in the description or the show notes, um, I'll have a link to an article and podcast that I've recorded on the subject, helping us better understand the difference between Hades and the lake of fire. And that hell is not both of these things. It's either one or the other, depending on the term that you want to use. Total side note, but check it out. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty cool one. But ultimately, that is they know that something is waiting for them. Uh, we also know Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is where Satan and his angels are going, right? Along with the beast and the false prophet, they are going to the lake of fire. And it's not just this bloop, you know, removed from existence thing. They are going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is looming over them. That is a solid reality that I think they know they can't escape from. I think they know God well enough to know that their end is sealed, that this is unquestionably coming for them. Uh, back in Revelation uh, 12, this is after the war in heaven, it says uh, in Revelation 12, 12, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Now, as I discussed in a previous video, when the war in heaven takes place, either it happened around the time of Christ's uh, death, burial, and resurrection, because we know that Satan is defeated by the blood of, of Jesus, or it will happen sometime in the future in the tribulation, um, because it talks about how uh, those who die for Christ are also part of that victory. Um, wherever you put it, though, if it if it has happened in the past, right, if Satan's already been cast out of heaven, then he presently knows that he has only a short time, right? He has gotten desperate. He has gotten violent, so much so that the earth is told to, to mourn, right? Woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has come down, and he's got great wrath, right? He is angry. He is, he is out for chaos and destruction, uh, but even if it's a future event, right, even if Satan is up there right now accusing us before before God in, in God's courtroom, but in the future will be thrown down. Either way, he still knows that he needs to stall because this, this casting out of heaven, if it's a future event, this casting out of heaven is going to happen. And therefore, his, his future and eternal judgment is also going to happen but they know that it's coming. And here's the issue, though. 
they don't know when Jesus will return. They know that Jesus is going to come. He's going to, to uh, you know, basically take back over the nations. He's going to cast them out. But they don't know when this is going to happen, right? Because Matthew 24, 36, we are reminded that, but of the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So if the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth, right, where he fully touches down on earth and sets up his thousand-year kingdom and then the judgment and then eternity and the new heavens and the new earth, if this is a guaranteed thing that's coming, if that kind of is, is what uh, heralds the end of it, right, they know that their defeat and judgment are coming when Christ returns. They don't know when, but they know that that is key. A second thing that's key, though, is that the fullness of the Gentiles is what's going to basically bring in the return of Jesus Christ. We see this in Romans 11.25. It says, For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. What does he want them to know? That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, what this fullness of the Gentiles is, is not explained well here, but we can take some context clues to make a good guess. So, as you recall, we talked about how at the events of Babel, God disinherited the nations, right? God had had all people who he was kind of basically calling to obedience and, and had treated all nations or all people essentially equally um, in terms of his ownership of them. But at Babel, it was kind of the final mark of rebellion, and God came down, he scattered their languages, and he, he assigned all these other nations to these different sons of God in this divine council that we saw in Psalm 82. Uh, but it says that in the, the Deuteronomy 32 passage that God chose essentially the nation of Israel to be his portion, right? He had, he had disinherited, he had, he had essentially farmed out, if you will, the authority and rulership of these other nations to these angels. And they were supposed to drive worship and obedience to God back to God, but they failed. But God chose Israel for his own. Now, as we read the whole, the whole history of Israel, right, in the Old Testament, uh, as well as kind of the state of Israel in the, in the Gospels, and then finally the Great Commission, we see that this has almost been reversed, so at Babel, God chose Israel and, and cast out the rest of the nations, right? He didn't reject them because we see with things like Rahab, for example, that those of the Gentile nations could become followers of God still. But God's focus was Israel. But after Jesus Christ, he, he reverses that, right? And, and we see this in, in this Romans passage here, that a hardening has come on Israel, right? That God is judging them for their continual rejection and rebellion of the Father, but also their, their outright rejection of the Messiah that God had promised them all throughout the Old Testament, right? They had outright rejected Jesus Christ to the point of killing him to protect themselves, and so God is judging Israel by essentially taking his focus off of them and turning his attention to the nations. The, the nations are, are these Gentiles, and a Gentile is essentially anyone who's not a Jew. So most likely you and definitely me. So all this, though, all this comes together 
in this, this statement that Paul makes in Romans eleven twenty five, that there is a temporary uh, uh, hardening of Israel that God is going to reverse, as we see in uh, things like uh, Revelation, that Israel's going to that God's going to draw Israel back to Himself. But for now, God has has opened up the gospel to the entire world, to all the Gentiles, and it seems, it seems. That Jesus Christ will not return. He will not come back and draw Israel back to himself until his purpose in the Gentile world has been fulfilled. Now, we don't know what specifically that is, but it seems very clear that God has chosen to pour himself out, right? To spread the gospel, to, to call in those in, in the Gentile world. But that's not going to be a forever thing, right? The, the time for us to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, to put our full trust in him, is limited. It's limited by our lifespan, for one, but also for as long as God has opened up this call to the rest of the world to turn away from sin and put their full faith in Jesus Christ. And when God is done with that, then he will essentially close that off to the Gentiles open it back up, right? He's going to call Israel back to himself, as we see him do over and over again in the Old Testament. And I believe that that is that seven-year tribulation that we're going to experience, where all the Gentile nations of the world are going to be basically casting off God, right? They're going to just outright reject everything God-related. They're going to start following this new Messiah that, as we see, is the, is the Antichrist, you know, propped up by Satan, and this is the time where the, the, the whole world will turn against Israel. And then Jesus Christ will return to rescue his people, to eliminate his enemies and set up his thousand-year kingdom on earth. But all of this is wrapped around the fullness of the Gentiles. So what that means is that their time is determined by the spread of the gospel to all of these Gentile nations. Really think about that. Jesus Christ in the Great Commission, right, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, what authority is that? How, how did he receive the authority? He received the authority when it was removed from those who could no longer have the authority. You know, we talked last time about how Satan said that he promised Christ, and I think he was telling the truth, that he had the authority of all the nations, right? All these rebellious angels who were, were set over the nations had basically aligned themselves with Satan and kind of made him, if you will, the, 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 the CEO of this. You know, these guys were all regional managers, but Satan was the one who was over all of them. And he had that authority to give rulership to Christ, right? To, to let him inherit the nations through Satan. But here Jesus is saying that he has been given authority in heaven and on earth, right? All this authority that God had entrusted to these angels has now been given to Jesus Christ. He says, go therefore. And remember, what's the therefore, therefore? Because he has authority, because Jesus has that authority over the nations, go and make disciples of all the nations, all those people that God had disinherited at Babel. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that key there, right, the thing that we want to focus in on for the purpose of our discussion is that the gospel is central to all of this stuff about the Gentile nations, right? If, if the fullness of the Gentiles is the beginning of the end, and if the fullness of the Gentiles comes from spreading the gospel to these nations, these Gentile nations, then their time is determined by when God's plan and purpose is filled out. As soon as the, the fullness of the Gentiles has come, when God is done saving the Gentiles that he wants to save, then that's it. Everything else is just an inevitability, right? There's no more delaying. There's no more stalling. There's no more buying more time. The only opportunity, the only option they have is to delay now, to halt the spread of the gospel, to stop other people knowing and trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And so to summarize what Satan's goal is, Satan and his angels want to delay their promised defeat as long as possible. If the future return of Jesus is based on the gospel spreading throughout the nations, then they must slow that down as much as possible. This is why worldliness is Satan's greatest weapon. Now, it is very hard for me to stop there because next time we are going to get in to what we're going to bring it all together in the next video. But for now, this is what I want us to see. We talked about what Satan's powers and limitations are. We talked about how he has aligned himself with these rebellious angels and how they basically create a whole world of distractions, right? Because that's ultimately what worldliness is. Worldliness distracts unbelievers. It makes them content. It makes them satisfied. It helps them find their identity in things apart from Jesus Christ, Right. Those who live apart from Jesus Christ, they are, for the most part, content with their lives. You know, if God's not working in them to show them the hollowness and emptiness of worldliness, then that is because they have been thoroughly distracted with everything else in the world. Right. They are satisfied or so they think without Jesus Christ. But similarly, you think of Christians, you think of yourself. When are you least effective for Jesus? I can guarantee if you are honest with yourself, it's when you are distracted by other things, right? When you're too busy in the mornings to be in the word, when you are, are too distracted by your, your own problems to be in prayer, when you are so focused on yourself and your own issues that you are not actively involved in, in a group of, of believers in a local church, right? When you are afraid of others or when you don't even see the value uh, of sharing the gospel when you have the opportunity, Right When we are distracted, we are ineffective. When we are so caught up in this life, in this world, in all that it seems to have to offer, we just spend our lives struggling. Why? Because worldliness is Satan's greatest weapon against the spread of the gospel. That's the whole point. That's why they do what they do. If they can make people satisfied and distracted and not see the need for God and Jesus Christ as their savior, then that's a success. But even within that, Satan's goal for Christians isn't to just hurt us and make us feel bad. 
He wants to neutralize us. He wants to make us weak and ineffective. And how does he do that? Again, it's not through personal attacks. He doesn't need to give us personal attacks. Instead, he needs to create a world that offers us enough distractions, right? In the worst sinful, wretched ways possible, but also with those things that seem really, really good. You know, finding our identity in our work or in our families. You know, work and family is a good thing, but we can become so wrapped up and so consumed with activities, with making money and things like that, that our focus, you know, what we serve are those things, right? We, we are thinking just like the rest of the world, you know, our hobbies and how much time and money and effort and energy we spend on those, um, you know, enjoying our friends and finding our identity with them or, or spending all of our time with them or letting them determine what our goals are, what our motivations are and things like that. Even time spent at church and doing Christian-like things, if we are doing it with the motivation of, I want to feel good about myself, I want to prove that I'm a Christian, I want to show that I can earn my salvation and I can keep my salvation, that's worldliness too. Because that is putting the focus on us and our efforts. And when we are so consumed with proving ourselves to God, we are not going to actually live for him out of a love for him and what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Satan and his angels, they need worldliness. They need us distracted because the, the weaker we are, the more we're distracted, the more the world is blinded, the longer they have in this world because they know what's waiting for them. They know what that lake of fire is. They know what it's going to, maybe they don't know what it's going to be like in there, but they know it is going to be bad for them. And so the longer they can drag their feet, the longer they can create distractions, the longer they can use chaos and, and planned worldliness to their advantage, the longer they have, even if it only delays for a few years, that's a few years that they are not spending eternity tormented in the lake of fire. So to wrap this up, what I want to ask you is if this is true, right? If, if we, if we look at these things, if we look at the progress of events, if we just take what this series has discussed as a whole package, and if it's true that Satan uses worldliness to distract us, to buy himself time, then really evaluate your life. Ask yourself, are you living for Jesus? Which means forwarding the gospel, breaching the, the, uh, the Gentile nations, right? Not, not just, you know, go out and be missionaries necessarily, but are you playing an active part in, in fulfilling God's purpose to have this fullness of the Gentiles come? Or are you letting Satan distract you with worldly things? Maybe you are going to heaven. You know, I'm not doubting that if you are distracted by worldliness, I'm not saying that you are unsaved. That's, that's not at all the point of this, because I don't think that's Satan's point. His point isn't to hurt individuals. It's to, to deceive the world and to have Christians play a part, or at least not play a part in, in messing up his plans, right? His whole goal is to have the world so distracted that the fullness of the Gentiles takes a lot longer to play out. That God's goal of, of, of reaching the world with the truth of Jesus Christ, what, however God is actually doing that. And whenever he says that, that the fullness is there, right? That he has done his saving work throughout the nations. Whatever that looks like, however long that takes. We don't know. I don't think Satan knows. 
all he knows is that everything hinges on the gospel spreading throughout the world. Are we falling for that? Are we, in a way, making Satan happy because we are being ineffective? We are distracted. We are letting worldliness cloud our thinking and neutralize our effectiveness for Jesus Christ in this life, in spreading the gospel and in living holy lives. Or are we just Christians who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, but as far as God's plans go, whether we're here or whether we weren't here, it wouldn't make a lick of difference to Satan's timeline. So that's, that's kind of a hard question. That's one that I think should convict all of us because none of us are living this life perfectly. All of us have worldliness that we allow to distract us, to delay us, to make us ineffective. But let this be that wake-up call, right? Let this be that motivation that Satan's got a plan that he is forwarding. God has a plan that he is forwarding. Satan cannot thwart God's plan, obviously. But Satan sure seems to think that he can do something to slow it down even just a little bit to buy himself time. So next time, now that we know what Satan can do, now that we know how Satan does what he does, especially through worldliness, and now that we know why Satan does what he does, next time we are going to talk about what spiritual warfare really looks like. And I think for a lot of people, it is going to be radically different than what we picture. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.